Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Christina Lampe-Önerud, also known as the Queen of Batteries. She is known for her pioneering work in developing lithium-ion batteries for portable electronics, electrical vehicles and utilities. As an entrepreneur, she founded and served as the CEO and international chairman for Boston Power, an innovative battery company that produced batteries to the consumer electronics, transportation and other end markets. Under her stewardship, Boston Power went from a startup to a global organization backed by more than 400 million US dollar in investment in technology centers in Beijing and Boston. She is currently the CEO of Candensa Innovation, a startup she founded in 2012 to bring safe, high energy density and low cost batteries to the EV grid storage and industrial markets. Christina is a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Science, and she has been recognized as a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum, where she also has served as a co-chair of its Global Future Council on Energy. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. <laughs> you. You are one of Sweden's two most recognized battery developers in the world. Who is the other one? I think you might be thinking of Peter. <laughs> Peter Carlson, who came from Tesla, is now the CEO of Northvolt. Uh, do you know each other? We do. Uh, in fact, we have even been uh, on panels together, uh, even here. So I live now outside New York, uh, in New York City, for the Swedish American Business Foundation that has a very fun program here in New York. Let us go into your background. Why did you position yourself as a battery developer? How did it start? So I've always been very curious, Kai, about um, how things work. And at the same time, I've always been very interested in being part of solutions. I come from a wonderful country of Sweden. I've had the privilege of also living now in the States. I've been to some of the greatest schools in both countries. And I feel just extremely lucky. And with that, I've always felt um, an obligation, maybe a calling to pursue what is good and that can do well. So making money in opportunities that can put the world forward, that can help generations to come and yet take the catalyst that is right now in us with this energy transition, this huge problem on climate change, huge geopolitical problems where innovators need to come together and it has to be based on technology, a ton of passion and the energy of wanting to collaborate. And I think that recipe has never been more important than what we see today was happening in the world. I heard something about that you start your, as a battery developer in your garage home. <laughs> Is that true? I think all entrepreneurs start uh, <laughs> in their homes. <laughs> Most of my stuff also starts at the kitchen table where you kind of start with Excel spreadsheets and business plans and ideas and drawings and papers all over. But since I am in the hardcore sciences, it's good to have a garage where you can put things together and tinker with them and say, oh, look at that. That could actually work. <laughs> yeah. Well, but uh, what was the driver 
from the beginning? So um, I saw a lot of opportunities. I had the privilege of being part of the cellular revolution. So when we went from regular telephones to cell phones and data became something you could carry in your pocket, not something you had to have a chair and a desk for. Um, I was very young, but also got invited because it was a, a young industry and very few uh, were interested at the time. And I was one of the few. My heritage from my family, my father was quite involved in high power transmission and high voltage. Of course, I couldn't do what my dad did, so I had to do something a little different. Mm -hmm. But I carry on the torch for international uh, opportunities, big intractable problems, and science, mathematics, chemistry, physics, engineering, um, and then got quite inspired to basically make it work. So a little bit why is also you have to get engaged and you have to care a little bit about policy. You have to care a lot about commercial markets and that handshake between private and public. When we talk about batteries and particular lithium ion batteries, uh, can you give the listener a little bit of an insight in the technology? What sort of difference is it in this type of batteries? Sure. So a lithium-ion battery is, lithium is element number three, super light. It sits to the very left in the second row of the periodic table, and it only has three electrons, three protons, three electrons. So it's very, very reactive. In fact, if you throw lithium into a river, which some students might have just done at their university times, say no more, uh, into water, it goes into flames, very fun. Uh, very, very reactive. So lithium ion is lithium metal that is stripped of one electron and then that's charged. And as it's charged, it can carry electricity. So basically the lithium ion travels from one pole to the other pole and lithium is a cool element because it's so small, it can go into the cathode materials. That's called intercalation. So it can sit in a metal oxide host or any type of host. And then when it's done with its work, it walks back and sits ready to be used again. So that is basically a battery chemistry one-on-one. So you have a charge carrier, a plus that goes this way, and then the electron goes the other way and that drives current. Has it been any problem in the development of the technology under the years? Oh yes, absolutely. Because it's so reactive, you have to be very careful on how you balance it. So the anode balance versus the cathode, what types of electrolytes you put into this. So it's both for safety and performance, and then ultimately also cost. So yeah, there have been a lot of amazing progress and some pretty bad lessons learned for the whole industry. One of which has been, if you take the, the whole paradigm of cell phones. So a cell phone used to be much, much bigger a brick, you could barely hold it in one hand. And now we effortlessly hold it in one hand. We carry it in a pocket. You can uh, have it anywhere on you and you have it next to yourself all the time. And now it is roughly a third of the real estate and a third of the cost. It used to be something where the industry thought of batteries as something you just buy. It's a standard uh, component. And as we go into electric cars and grid energy storage and these huge systems, Everything is actually built around the battery. 
And the industry is right now grappling with the issue of you can't really use the same technology that you have in cell phones. It has to be modified when you go to larger scale. It has to be modified predominantly because of safety. So the industry may try to push things, but the general public doesn't really like that you have explosions in urban areas or explosions in expensive capital. So you want to be very careful. So you can either build around it or you can put it into the design. So there's a ton of innovation going on right now. As we would say, we have probably as an industry conquered small portable electronics and we have a really good idea what EVs look like and there is continuous improvements going and we will make them denser and safer as an industry and the cost will come down. And the challenge at the same time is of course with grid storage where you have electricity highways coming through and there are multiple solutions depending a little bit where you are on, on Earth. You founded and served as a CEO of Boston, Boston Power in 2004 and you were working there until 2012. Uh, it was a new like, uh, lithium ion startup in the US and you raised more than 400 million US dollars. Yeah. What was the challenge to set it up and to drive this work? So that was pretty early in the Western approach of lithium ion battery technologies in general. Uh, there was an interest and in especially from uh, the idea that we could put data in our pockets. That was really the drive. So the way of communications, of data storage, of, of um, collaboration early days, even the idea that you could pull data into accessible data pools and make decisions on society level as well as personal levels. And that was very interesting. And the drive then came from, okay, we got to make them smaller. We got to make them more reliable, more dependable. And with Boston Power, we launched uh, a, a new type of cell that were able to solve for the problems of the transatlantic flights and laptops initially. And it seems like my theme is all, always uh, with the grassroots it couldn't explode. So we had a very safe system that also had longer runtime and landed and very grateful for the collaborations that we established with HP, with the Lenovo and Asus Tech. And then of course we went into the GM concern with the Saab team in Sweden, as well as some of the global teams and ultimately exited the company to the Chinese uh, Beijing Auto and others that took this technology forward into the automotive space. But uh, this was not enough for you, uh, because in 2012, you, you founded the Candenza Innovation. Yes. And um, what, what was the reason for, for this step? So as is uh, common when you exit a privately held company, uh, Boston Power, you want to basically help stabilize customers, staff, uh, investors. And I had a chance to take a, a, an opportunity outside the battery industry. So I joined Ray Dalio at Bridgewater uh, to look at uh, a little bit how capital markets ran. I learned a lot. I sat next to him in the office and basically learned a ton from him, how you think about capital markets, what are the big influencers, the irrational decisions by people where logic should have made different decisions on policy and how tightly connected policy is to economics. But most of all, it continued to fuel my passion for doing right by many. And um, I had ideas uh, early on where I saw an opening of really low cost, very, very high safety and high performance. 
And at the same time, having built gigafactories in China and, and very large factories in Taiwan as well and shipped globally and worked in global supply chain, I had this insight that maybe we could make the factories smaller. In fact, maybe we could be part of establishing a new green era where every sovereign state could have a battery manufacturing site, create green jobs, release awesome products, customize them slightly to their temperature and use cases and benefit and basically enable this technology to come in. So I uh, had the vision to create something super simple that could be licensed and used by many. And that was basically the idea. It's complicated always, so it takes longer than you think, but that is, I think, still an awesome idea. Can you give some example on where in the market you will see your product? We are just exiting the product development phase. So what we have done is a pretty ruggedized cost down of how to manufacture this technology. We have a small line operating in China. We are now looking to bring manufacturing to the United States. We have um, actually two different product lines. One that is really focused on grid energy storage and the opportunities associated with the electricity highway and one that is more focused on commercial and industrial applications. So everything from uh, small motive applications to large complex systems that really on a smaller scale integrate renewables. Um, we have, uh, I think, an opportunity in spite of COVID and in spite of geopolitical tensions uh, the problem has not gone away. And climate change is still the biggest threat to us, but it's also our biggest opportunity. Why? Because we typically pay for electricity. We like products that solve problems and resilience is a big deal. And because this technology um, that uh, we have now brought forward with Cadence Innovation enables lower operating costs and the capital acquisition is so low, we think this could be a, a really cool solution for, for some time to come. Where do you have uh, the manufacturing unit for uh, your products? So right now we're manufacturing in uh, the US at a small uh, manufacturing line and in the China. And we're right now scaling and looking to how to basically make this widely available. Um, and there are multiple countries actually that are quite interested at this point. So um, I'll come back to you when I have more precision on that. Oh, I see. Well, uh, and how many people are in the company today? So we have uh, roughly 25 people inside the company, but we have over 200 people engaged in different partnerships. Mm -hmm. So because it was so disruptive, Kai, to come in with lower cost and leading performance indicators and safety as a non-event, when you have failure, it never explodes, it will not go into fires, which is unheard of in this industry. We had a different business model from the start. We took many of our partners in into the ecosystem and we have established through that global supply chain, manufacturing partnerships, um, as well as offtake. So examples that are in the public domain uh, include Alcoa, who came to us very, very early. And uh, we looked at their basic cans, soda cans, and looked at some of their inventions and said, 
well, you know a lot about aluminum and for part of our existence and our journey, Alcoa donated uh, a big team to us. We co-developed uh, a number of components that go into this very safe way of thinking. Okay, so it's just an example. Um, we have recently made a, a very, very nice partnership with Rockwell Automation, where we're working on everything from cloud solutions, where they have a lot of insight and knowledge in backbone high security IT. And Cadenza brings uh, really cutting edge insight into how to simplify but govern batteries correctly and to make that hook very, very easy to deploy, like the Lego blocks of energy, also Lego blocks of software that basically talk to these batteries. So you can have data centralized in the United States or in Europe, and you can deploy batteries all over. So that's, that's a new model. And I think there's a lot of thinking around uh, cloud and hardware. We have tried to put that together in one company and we do it not because we think we know everything, but we attract a lot of partners who know way more than we do. And we really understand the battery side. Under this year, everything maybe not has been so easy. And, uh, but as an entrepreneur, what is a lesson learned for others who are thinking to develop new technology? What do you need to think about? Yeah, so I had the privilege of uh, meeting Steve Jobs um, and one of these super entrepreneurs. And he always said, and I also had been uh, in, in very, very cool sessions with Bill Gates through the World Economic Forum's Tech Pioneer Program. And I think they are both very clear, like this is a really hard life. And they always look at us, the, the new ones, basically, and say, is there really nothing else you can do? And I think the truth is there are many other things you can do. Um, but if you believe that your solution is something that the big guys either cannot execute on or will not see or maybe don't want to embrace in spite of what you think is very good, you have no other choice. In my case, it's like I'm data driven. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues and friends and goodwill in this industry. And I believe we must activate. These are huge opportunities and huge problems. So it's almost like either we all do the best we can and we create something very, very good for generations to come or we don't engage and then it's devastating. But as a woman and a leader, What's the lesson learned? I don't know. I have only this lesson. I only have this life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I understand the question, of course. It is, uh, it is not an equal playing field at all. Um, I think that um, it always looks easier maybe than it, than it is. Um, there is zero tolerance for failure. You have to be very mindful of how you land a message and how you appear and all that stuff. Very, very uh, complicated, actually. Uh, it's not a level play field at all. So again, having friends that uh, are in the room with you who say, no, what she said was actually this. Let's take it again so you don't get shut down. It's, it's very important. How do you see your role to, to be a good trans? transformer 
uh, to meet the climate change targets? Yeah, so I, I don't think there is a, a silver bullet for how we solve it. I also don't think it's going to be one person, one day. It's a long journey, uh, but I think we have to engage fiercely. Um, we have to stand up to uh, data matters, science matters, technology will be part of the solution set. Uh, policy has to be clear and simple and consistent. We have to establish collaboration across borders. So my contributions will be um, in engaging with multiple countries on uh, both uh, very public fora as well inside rooms on the Chatham House uh, discussion, kind of a little bit of heat going on, what is right and what is not right and does that work and, and can we calculate this to be true or not? I think that we have to engage. So in my case, I've been around, I have some knowledge, um, I lead by grace and perseverance. I, I believe that we have to collaborate and I also believe it's very, very urgent. So we have to dare to be wrong in order to be right. We have to be aggressive on targets and we have to be kind in collaboration. Yeah, but, but, but where do you think the, the biggest challenges are? I think it is in the collaboration. I think the, the geopolitical um, temperature is extraordinarily dangerous. I think that we had a chance to learn from the recent uh, pandemic situation where we actually fostered some level of sharing data and sharing best practices. Uh, but I don't think we have uh, decided that uh, there is a way for us to work together. In fact, I see many countries now uh, either asserting aggression or trying to respond to such asserted aggression. And at the same time, we see many nations say, okay, fine, I'm on my own. We will never be as powerful when we're on our own as when we collaborate. Um, but I think the pendulum has just swung really, really far. So the good things that will come from independent organization is going to be many more will get engaged in solving these problems. And that I think is actually a very good thing. But you also said that um, uh, it's important also to see the local uh, market and, and the opportunity to create jobs. Uh, how do your business fit into that model? Yeah, so we have an expert team, if you wish. We have run Six Sigma Manufacturing, Five S Principles, Giga Factories for many years. We understand the atoms, the science, the, uh, the way you put together and design a battery. We understand design of modules, packs. We are very familiar with electronics. We can do coding. And we have deployed many, many different types of battery solutions where our strength is really in collaboration. We've shaped some of these markets. So my vision is that there are a few teams like this that are willing to work with multiple teams. And I think that's critical. Simplify the technology, make it easy to implement and then deploy. So you actually have local manufacturing, local anchoring and global capital and global experts sitting behind it. Uh, one of the trends in, in the business models, which also are related to system thinking more uh, in the direction of um, 
collaboration and the name of circular economy. How had that influenced your thinking when you developed your business? Yeah, so I, I've been active in World Economic Forum for uh, over 10 years. Uh, I'm a two-time tech pioneer with them and have also led some of their councils, uh, particularly in energy, uh, as we have debated this. And the circular economy was adopted uh, as a as a framework very early on, as you know, from the World Economic Forum. And they have really been very successful in driving this out into a vernacular that can be discussed. So I, I tried to uh, design for recyclability repurposing in projects that I touch very, very directly. Um, I tried to engage uh, with uh, great journalists and media when there is a kind of an attempt to understand like what is recyclable, what is repurposable, and how do you design for manufacturing at the same time. Um, in fact, I am uh, stepping up my engagement in a few countries um, and also trying to be part of some of the boards of companies that are already engaged in this ecosystem to help foster uh, a faster path to market. In my mind, it is, um, the, 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 the cheapest way to do this is to design for longevity. Uh, the poison in some of our economies is this idea that we need to buy new things all the time and we have to consume and consume and consume. Um, you can have a different business model will, with very nice economics by making all the things we make last a little longer. It's a slightly different mindset but it's possible. And again, my very pragmatic way of trying to uh, help these discussions is stay within the economic framework. Don't revolutionize on multiple parts, but make a tweak inside this economic framework. And the impact on resource, on climate, and on emissions, on use of raw materials and basically leveraging resources is very large. So this is where low-hanging fruit happens. Identify and then take action. When we talk about the lithium-ion battery and yes. raw material, what is the challenges there? So For it's you? always a challenge when you have an industry that goes through double-digit growth. And uh, lithium-ion uh, was, of course, invented in the 70s. And it took almost 30 years until it was fully deployed in portable electronics. And over the next 30 years, we will see an adoption rate that uh, we have never seen before. Um, so that is the biggest challenge. So it's all components. We already see we're going into an electronics era that we also have never uh, seen before. And almost every one of those needs battery technology. We see uh, innovators now coming at this from many, many levels. You have lithium being mined, you have lithium being recycled, we have all the metals in the transition metal category of uh, oxides, you have new ideas on carbon, there's so much innovation going in this. Um, and I think two things will happen. We will invent better ways to use the raw materials that we have right now and refine them. And we will frankly, because we have supply constraints, we will have to identify new ideas to use these in a better way and use them longer. And 
that is also happening. So both of those are happening at the same time. And so I never underestimate, uh, underestimate the innovators. Uh, if the problem is clear enough, the human race is so clever. We're so curious. We're so interested in finding solutions. And there's so many uh, technical people who are paired up with uh, big economic theme thinkers who care about policy. There are hubs bubbling of innovators in almost every corner of the world. You it's think? A cool place. You think you're going to close the loop for your? I think. Your, so. you think? I think yeah, I think so. I think that uh, we could have done this, as you know. I served on the COP15. Uh, summit uh, as appointed by United Nations then Club de Madrid and it was a huge disappointment. We already knew then uh, ideas and pathways how to close the loop. Um, I think the the silent success of the recent COP meeting is not a single company today can avoid talking about their energy future for 2040-2050. I believe we will pull it in. I believe we will uh, make it much easier. And as in fact, I'm involved in a very public demonstration here in New York State, which is tied to New York City and the New York Power Authority who pulls hydropower from Niagara Falls, where they are putting our batteries at a demonstration next to a public bus stop to show the general public, this is how it works. And uh, this is how we do peak shaving. Here's how we think about this. The waterfalls run all the time. Now we're not wasting the energy and you can use this clean energy at night when you're on your dishwasher or whatever. Uh, very, very interesting. One of the issues that we haven't uh, going into details around, but I think you have a lot of experience uh, under the years and you also have succeed to, to raise 400 million US dollar. And um, because of sustainability is also about finance. Uh, you, you need to have enough money to grow. Yep. Has that been a problem for you? What's your experience in connection to investors and the capital market? Yeah, so it is always a, a challenge, right? So the, um, the biggest lesson I uh, got from Bridgewater and Ray Dalio is economic frameworks. How do you frame up the issue? How do you think about uh, the problem, what matters and what doesn't matter. And unfortunately, the way capital markets evaluate the current paradigm is not a 10-year horizon, maybe not even a five-year horizon. So capital markets are notoriously impatient. You need to have a return very quickly. Cost of capital is uh, all, always tied to when you double or triple or 10x or 40x your money. And the sad thing for technologies that are somewhat complicated is, of course, if it's real, you can't do that in a one or two years. So in the hardware business, you need to build factories. You have to have patience for that. And you have to create uh, product roadmaps. You have to continuously invest. They become really good businesses and they become very important anchors in the local societies in the countries where you create these companies and they uh, stimulate other innovators. So battery technology today is one of the kernels for, in my opinion, the future of work, the future of energy, the future of innovation, because we're going into this hybrid system of 
virtual, so non-physical to physical. We still have physical things. And the energy paradigm in that is so critical. So having that dispersed into multiple markets is critical. So frankly, this is a call to action for our friends in policy. We have to make sure that the policy initiatives provide stability and long-term gains that outpace the undesired opportunities, which is the frenzy around bubbles. Very few people win in bubbles. The frenzy around hyperbole. Very few people win in hyperbole. And the stimulation and the celebration of the people who tried something big, where we all can learn from it. Those are, I think, the three cornerstones that we are grappling with in a really big way. And it comes up in almost all of my meetings uh, over the last few years. And uh, the situation for the future on the investment, uh, is it easier today than it was in the beginning? I don't think so. I don't think it's much easier. Um, um, I think it depends on who you are. So since I, um, I am probably too conservative, probably too pragmatic, probably too honest, and probably too collaborative for our times, but I believe in this guy so passionately that I also know good guys can finish. We may not finish first, but we certainly will not finish last. I believe I will be part of a large group of people who are doing it for the sheer stimulants of doing something that is really awesome and taking part of a new economic paradigm at the same time. And I believe we will prevail. And I think maybe that was an answer for the question I thought I should ask you about. Where do we find you in five years' time? Yes. Well, <laughs> where, where is it? Uh, we will be in person for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, so but there, yeah, and, and the market and, 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 and um, uh, your company will grow where? So we have multiple initiatives right now. Um, I mean, it's um, it's so sad to see geopolitical tensions right now. And yet um, I have been traveling so much and I have worked with multiple countries over the years. So I continue to believe that the solutions is outreach, collaboration, great technology that actually works, great policy that actually stimulates growth. And I believe um, I will continue to fight for this. So I will probably continue to live uh, here outside New York City. I will continue to uh, have one foot in Sweden and I'm coming to Sweden in April. So that's gonna be very fun. Uh, I haven't been to China for a long time due to the COVID situation. I still serve as an advisor to the Australian government. Um, I have ongoing discussions with many member nations in Africa. And uh, I believe, uh, and also South Africa, South, South America, sorry. And I believe this will continue. Uh, it will always need one fearless leader and a team surrounding that fearless leader. And we will take turns to be the leaders at times. Thank you very much, Christina. I'm pleased to have a, your voice in the Transformers podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.